This is CPX number 71, The Holy Mass, Part 2. We are in the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X, CPX, page 81 to 82. Question and answer number 11 to 21. God give you his peace. In nomine Patris, Affiliate, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler Spirit, Spirit of Truth, who art present everywhere and filling all things, treasure of all good and source of all life, come dwell in us, cleanse us, and save us, you who are all good. In nomine Patris, Affiliate, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Number 11, who instituted the sacrifice of the Holy Mass? Answer, Jesus Christ himself instituted the sacrifice of the Holy Mass when he instituted the sacrament of the Blessed Eucharist and said that this should be done in memory of his passion. Number 12, to whom is the Holy Mass offered? Answer, the Holy Mass is offered to God alone. Number 13, if the Holy Mass is offered to God alone, why are so many Masses celebrated in honor of the Blessed Virgin and of the Saints? Answer, Mass celebrated in honor of the Blessed Virgin and the Saints is always a sacrifice offered to God alone. It is said to be celebrated in honor of the Blessed Virgin and the Saints to thank God for the gifts He has given them, and through their intercession to obtain from Him more abundantly the graces of which we have need. Number 14, who shares in the fruits of the Mass? Answer, the entire church shares in the fruits of the Mass, but more particularly, one, the priest and those who assist at Mass, the latter being united with the priest, and two, those for whom the Mass is applied, both living and dead. The way to assist at Mass. Number 15, what is required in order to assist at Holy Mass well and profitably? Answer, to assist at Holy Mass well and profitably, two things are necessary. One, modesty of person, and two, devotion of heart. Number 16, in what does modesty of person consist? Answer, modesty of person consists especially in being modestly dressed, in observing silence and recollection, and, as far as possible, in remaining kneeling, except during the time of the two Gospels, which are heard standing. Number 17, in hearing Holy Mass, which is the best way to practice true devotion? Answer, in hearing Holy Mass, the best way to practice true devotion is the following. One, from the very beginning, to unite our intention with that of the priest, offering the holy sacrifice to God for the ends for which it was instituted. Two, to accompany the priest in each prayer and action of the sacrifice. Three, to meditate on the passion and death of Jesus Christ and to heartily detest our sins which have been the cause of them. Number four, to go to communion, or at least to make a spiritual communion while the priest communicates. Number 18, what is spiritual communion? Answer, spiritual communion is a great desire to be united sacramentally with Jesus Christ, saying, for example, My Lord Jesus Christ, I desire with my whole heart to be united with thee now and forever, and then make the same acts that are to be made before and after sacramental communion. Number 19, does the recitation of the rosary or other prayers during Mass prevent us from hearing it with profit? Answer, the recitation of the rosary and other prayers during Mass does not prevent us from hearing it with, pro with profit, provided we try as far as possible to follow the parts of the Holy Sacrifice. Number 20, is it advisable to pray for others while assisting at Mass? Answer, yes, it is advisable to pray for others while assisting at Mass. Nay more, the time of Holy Mass is the most suitable of all times to pray for the living and the dead. Number 21, what should we do after Mass? 
Answer after Mass, we should give God thanks for having allowed us to assist at this great sacrifice, and we should ask pardon for all the faults we may have committed while assisting at it. Thus are the words of the Holy Pope. Okay, today we're going to go in order of questions 16, and then 18, and then 17. There's a lot to cover, so I have some hyperlinks in the show notes. You'll know what that means a little bit later. Let's look at number 16. In what does modesty of person consist? Answer, modesty of person consists especially in being modestly dressed, in observing silence and recollection, and as far as possible, in remaining kneeling except during the time of the two Gospels which are heard standing. Now there's some errors on this. There's a lot of Catholic people these days, especially women, who say modesty is completely cultural, or they might say something like, modesty is just a matter of the heart, not of the body. There's a lot of Catholic women out there who say, Modesty is a woman of the heart, not of the body. Well, my answer to that is, <laughs> tell that to the men who are lusting after your body, not after your heart. You see, modesty is objective, and we're specifically speaking about mass, but this is everywhere, but we'll focus in on the mass today. Modesty is objective, and it always has been. So I'm going to read you a papal decree dec- concerning modesty written by His Holiness Pope Pius XI on the 12th of January, 1930. Now, before I jump into that, let me make a quick note. I heard from someone that Padre Pio would deny absolution to men in short sleeves in the confessional. I don't know how he knew what people were wearing since there was a screen between him and the penitents, but probably he told the people who worked in the church, maybe the other friars who were prepping his long lines for confession, that he would not allow immodestly dressed people to approach his confessional. Now, why would he say no to men in short sleeves? Look, Padre Pio wasn't afraid of men. He was getting beat up by demons all the time. What he meant is that you're approaching a sacrament and you better have decent clothes on as you approach a sacrament. This is where you're going to be forgiven. So even men in short sleeves was not sufficiently modest for Pio to approach a sacrament. So I want you to hear this. Men, as I just showed, are involved in modesty issues, but the papal decree from 1930 was specifically about women at Mass. This is I'm reading this, parts of this, so you know that modesty is objective at Mass. Pope Pius XI either wrote or signed his name to these quotes, which I will include in the show notes. This is why I'm going to hyperlink these so you know I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, first quote, he says, Women and girls who wear immodest clothes are to be prohibited from Holy Communion, and from the office of sponsor in the sacraments of baptism and confirmation, and in certain cases they are to be prohibited even from entry into the church. Next quote, A dress cannot be called decent, which is cut deeper than two fingers' breadth under the pit of the throat, which does not cover the arms at least to the elbows, and scarcely reaches a bit beyond the knees. Furthermore, Dresses of transparent material are improper. That's the vicar, cardinal vicar of Pope Pius XI on that. Number eight, in what's called the Mary Light Standards of Modesty here, eight slacks or jeans are not to be worn at church by women. And number one of the Mary Light Standards, Mary Like is modest without compromise like Mary Christ's mother. Number two, Mary Like dresses have sleeves extending at least to the elbows and skirts reaching below the knees. Number three, Mary-like dress requires full coverage for the chest, shoulders, and back, except for a cutout around the neck, not exceeding two inches below the neckline, in front and in back, and a corresponding two inches on the shoulders. Again, that is a papal decree concerning modesty by His Holiness Pope Pius XI, written on the 12th of January, 1930, which again, I'm going to link 
in my show notes. Let's jump into number 18. Number 18, what is a spiritual communion? Answer, a spiritual communion is a great desire to be united sacramentally with Jesus Christ, saying, for example, My Lord Jesus Christ, I desire with my whole heart to be united with thee now and forever, and then make the same acts that are to be made before and after sacramental communion. Okay, so this is when you go into a church, and in some sense you pretend like you're receiving communion, but you're not. And this is called a spiritual communion. And you make a prayer to unite yourself with Jesus in the Eucharist, but you're only doing it spiritually, not physically like you do when you receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. I had heard a rumor once you could only do a, a spiritual communion in sanctifying grace, just like you can only receive Holy Communion in sanctifying grace. Well, the truth is, to make a physical communion of the body, blood, soul, and divinity, it is true, of course, as I've said a thousand times, you do have to be in sanctifying grace but you do not have to be in sanctifying grace to make a spiritual act of communion. This is why this is open to people who are not even Catholic yet. You see, we can make a spiritual communion even when we're not in sanctifying grace. Or we can make it when we are in sanctifying grace. I heard that uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe would make one every 15 minutes. Now, what I didn't know up until today was that we are to prepare well, for spiritual communes and even make a thanksgiving after a spiritual communion. So you go into a church, you unite yourself spiritually, not physically, you unite yourself spiritually with Jesus in the tabernacle. But this should be done under such piety that there's even a little prep and a little denouement, a little thanksgiving. Again, I learned this today. I didn't know this today because the Pope said, quote, and then make the same acts that are to be made before and after spiritual communion, end quote. So there's a few different prayers on how to do this. My favorite comes from St. Alphonsus Liguori, and it goes like this. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the most holy sacrament. I love you above all things, and I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you were already there and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. So I'm going to link that as a link in the show notes. And again, if you are a non-Catholic waiting to get baptized, you can still attend Holy Mass on Sundays. And when everyone else or half the congregation goes up to receive Holy Communion, if you're not Catholic, you shouldn't go yet. But you can make that prayer and unite unite yourself to the Son of God in that prayer. Number 17, in hearing Holy Mass, which is the best way to practice true devotion? Answer, in hearing Holy Mass... The best way to practice true devotion is the following. One, from the very beginning of Mass, to unite our intention with that of the priest, offering the holy sacrifice to God for the ends for which it was instituted. Number two, to accompany the priest in each prayer and action of the sacrifice. Number three, to meditate on the passion and death of Jesus Christ and to heartily detest our sins, which have been the cause of them. Number four, to go to Holy Communion or at least make a spiritual communion while the priest communicates. Okay, let's let's dissect just two of those. Number one, um, or rather number two, to accompany the priest in each prayer and action of the sacrifice. Of course, to accompany means interiorly in a contemplative way. That doesn't mean you go up and you help him with the prayers. The church had always understood the lay people's job. Um, Really, your benefit of the Mass comes how deep you go in contemplation, not how involved you get on the altar. This is all about contemplation. You see, the church actually understood the lay people were called to contemplation. Okay, number three was to meditate on the passion. Did you know that? Did you know you're supposed to be thinking about the passion of Jesus Christ when you go to Mass? The amazing thing is that the great saint and doctor of the church actually hammered out the various parts of the passion 
and put these into the different parts of the Mass. So in other words, in the opening prayers, when the priest is at the foot of the altar, you should be thinking of Jesus in the garden. When you see, 15 minutes later, when you see the priest take off the chalice, veil off the chalice, you should be thinking of Jesus being stripped, who's about to be scourged. It's absolutely brilliant how St. Francis de Sales saw that the entire passion of Jesus lined up perfectly with the Mass. And honestly, when I offer Mass behind me in my hermitage, I usually try to go through exactly what St. Francis de Sales says we should be meditating on at these various parts of the Mass. About three years ago, I made a video on this. Um, and I, what I did is I, I spliced the scenes from Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ into my own low Mass outside of a parish in Cincinnati where I was staying for a while. And then I also put in the words of Francis de Sales. So what I'm going to link in the show notes is simply the words of Francis de Sales. If you just want to like print that out, save it to your note app or whatever else, the St. Francis de Sales write up on the traditional Latin Mass, what you should be meditating on at every specific part of the Mass. I'm going to put that in the show notes so you can just have his words. But you can also see my Vimeo. There's 7,500 views on this barely known Vimeo channel of mine. And I don't tell you the numbers to brag, but just so you see that even on this barely known channel, this has brought a lot of people benefit. It's one of the um, really great things I made. And it wasn't because I made it. It's because of Mel Gibson's movie and because St. Francis de Sales' words are brought into um, what we should be meditating on. And this has been really helpful for people who are new to the traditional Latin Mass. Okay, now remember in the last video, I spoke about the difference of saying um, that one could say, I go on Sunday for the Holy Sacrifice or... I go on Sunday to church to receive Jesus in the Eucharist. Now, I hope you all got that those are pretty good answers both, but why did I repeatedly say it's better to say I go to the sacrifice than I go to get Jesus? Well, I thought of a new reason, so I'm going to double down on the last um, one that you saw. You say, see, saying I go to Mass to receive Jesus, it's a problem, especially if you're not prepared to receive Holy Communion. And here's the issue. That attitude has led to a deeper attitude that it's not worth going to Mass if you're not ready to receive Holy Communion. Rewind like two minutes if you want to get that spiritual communion to understand that many, many Catholics through history, they were sinners too. It's not, it's not a matter of judgment. It's just people weren't ready to go to put the Son of God in their body so they would make spiritual communions. But again, in the Middle Ages, they used to say, they would look at the, the host being raised and they say, this is the gaze that saves. The gaze that saves. Okay, now that may have gotten a little bit superstitious at times, but even St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that in attending Mass, you receive so much grace, it gives you the grace to make a good confession and come out of mortal sin. So it's worth attending the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, even if you're not prepared to receive communion. In other words, if you are in mortal sin, you can still pray. You can still give God somewhat his due by attending Mass, even though, of course, he deserves your whole heart and being in grace to worship him in holiness. But let me wrap this up on this section. The last reason is that when you say, something like we attend Mass to attend the sacrifice versus we attend Mass to receive the Eucharist. That former of the two teaches your kids it's still worth going to Mass if, God forbid, they ever fall into mortal sin. You see, this way, then your kids understand that um, you, you really shouldn't add a, another mortal sin of missing Mass on top of whatever their hidden current mortal sin is, even if they're not ready to receive because here's the thing, the worst mortal sin on top of all of that would be to receive Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin. Now, I, I don't tell you all this because I think God's like up there looking to get us with a lightning bolt for some forgotten sins. I know sometimes people listen to my podcast and they write me 
about this sin or that sin. I'm just telling you this so you understand that in the Middle Ages, even people in mortal sin knew it was good to attend Mass. I want you to hear the good news behind this. And that we need to return to this idea that it's worth going to Mass, not to get your Jesus vitamin for having heard a lame sermon, but that you go to Mass because you are attending the same sacrifice as Calvary. And if you can receive Holy Communion, that's excellent. I, I hope you can, but it's still awesome to go to Mass if you can't receive Holy Communion. Three, here's the big launching point for the rest of today's podcast. A private sinner is different from a public sinner. A private sinner is different from a public sinner. What do I mean by that? Well, okay, so you and I are both private sinners. We all go to confession for our sins. But if we go to Holy Communion, we are not causing public scandal to the Catholic faith. You see, the church has always delineated between these two because there's all these debates on like people like Biden and Pelosi. People like to say, well, we're all sinners. At what point do you start to say who can go and who can't? Well, the church has always made a delineation between private sinners and public sinners. And this is even in the new Code of Canon Law released under Pope John Paul II. Everybody has heard many debates on this canon, but I'm going to read it to you today anyway. Canon 915 reads... Quote, those who have been excommunicated or interdicted after the imposition or declaration of the penalty and others obstinately per persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. End quote. That's Canon 915. Okay, most of you know this. There's certain sins where you're automatically excommunicated. Like if you have an abortion, that's automatic, which in Latin is ex late sententiae automatically communicate, excommunicated for some sins. Or like if you were to purposefully take the Eucharist out of Mass and do something horrible, you are automatically excommunicated. Other, other excommunications have to be done at the decree of the bishop. So, for example, a pro-abortion politician, even though this person might be behind tens of thousands of abortions by their policies, they're not actually driving someone to an abortion center. And by the way, driving them would be ex late sententiae, um, excommunicated. But if a politicians who are indirectly involved but heavily involved, this is public uh, publicly sinning by promoting the greatest genocide in history. And so Canon 915 tells such people that if your bishop tells you you're excommunicated, you are, and you can't go anymore. So who does this all land on? This lands on the bishop since it's not an automatic excommunication. Now, um, let's talk about something before we get back to someone like um, uh, Biden and Pelosi. So quote-unquote, divorce and remarriage. Okay, these actually are public sins since you're publicly living with someone, not your spouse, at least if you haven't got the annulment. And in such a case, the pastor has to go speak to them in private if they're receiving Holy Communion without living as brother and sister or without that annulment. Um, the, again, the pastor has to speak to them in private. But now let's go back to the big-time pro-abortion politicians in Canon 915. You know, when Cardinal Burke was Bishop of La Crosse, Wisconsin, he conducted private communications to three Catholic legislators, imploring them, quote, to make their consciences correct with magisterial teachings, end quote. You're going to see in some of my quotes later, this is exactly the calling of bishops to speak privately to someone first. Um, and, you know, we do have these statements uh, from various bishops on the situation with Biden. Now the Vatican's involved. But I want to look at someone, since there's a lot of heat on Biden Let's look at someone else, Nancy Pelosi. You know, a month ago on the 21st of May, 2021, Eric Sammons with Crisis Magazine interviewed Archbishop Cordelione of San Francisco on this, and he brought up the topic of why don't you, Archbishop Corleone, deny communion to Nancy Pelosi? Well, the Archbishop talked for a while about abortion and communion and pastoral considerations, but his ultimate answer as to why he won't deny communion to Nancy Pelosi and his diocese there in San Francisco was, 
I'm not at that point yet. Here's the clip from that, credit to Crisis Magazine. The, the bishop or the pastoral leader has to have arrived at a point where he knows there's no, no benefit to be derived from this. It's, it's going to be fruitless and weigh all those other factors. So all I can say is I'm, I'm not at that point yet. Okay. That, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. So, but, and so I also, I also want to say something too about uh, Nancy Pelosi has done good as well. And I don't want to discredit that. And in particular, recently she was instrumental for us getting the uh, churches included in the, the PP, uh, P those, um, the payment protection program, our churches were in that. She was very helpful in that. So uh, I don't want to denigrate the good that she does. So I'll link that YouTube in the show notes too. But again, notice the Archbishop's main answer was, I'm not at that point yet. Is I'm, I'm not at that point yet. Now, I'm not going to get involved in applause or criticism for Archbishop Corleone's response there. You can go to the YouTube and see numerous comments, and people were very vocal on their own comments there. But as you think about that, realize that I did find this quote on the Roman Curious section of the Vatican website. This was up there just a few years ago. I had saved it to my Evernote. It's probably still there. But again, this is from the Roman Curious section of the Vatican website. Listen closely to this as you think of that clip I just showed you. Naturally, pastoral prudence would strongly suggest the avoidance of instances of public denial of Holy Communion. Pastors much, must strive to explain to the concerned faithful the true ecclesial sense of the norm in such a way that they would be able to understand it or at least respect it. In those situations, however, in which these precautionary measures have not had their effect or in which they were not possible, the minister of communion must refuse to distribute it to those who are publicly unworthy. They are to do this with extreme charity and to look for the opportune moment to explain the reasons that required the refusal. They must, however, do this with firmness, conscious of the value that such signs of strength have for the good of the church and of souls, end quote. But listen in the middle of that again. The minister of communion must refuse to distribute it to those who are publicly unworthy. Okay, yeah, I know, we're all private sinners and we can't judge people, but here's the thing. Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden are publicly unworthy. Why? Because they are perpetrating the greatest genocide in human history, namely abortion, which, by the way, targets minorities, especially blacks and Hispanics in this country. So pray to God for these bishops and politicians, because as Archbishop Corleone said later in that interview himself, these bishops will answer to God, not their brother bishops for these decisions on honoring God and the unborn dead by being obedient to Canon 915, since those who eat and drink the body and blood of the Lord unworthily eat and drink their own condemnation. The word ketesis in Greek is either judgment or condemnation. It's actually both. You eat and drink your own judgment and condemnation. And as I said, we're in the greatest genocide in history. So just think, how, how has history already judged those bishops who backed down in the face of the Nazis? I'm telling you, it's going to be a lot worse for bishops who do not protect the Most Holy Eucharist from public baby killers. And yes, these are baby killers just as much as Hitler was a Jew killer, even though he probably didn't directly kill a Jew himself. And they are enabled by bishops who keep them coming to the Eucharist for these sacrilegious communions after they keep in public policies that allow the slaughter of the greatest amount of people in the history of the world, namely abortion. Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up. Let me just remind you of the show notes I mentioned so you can go check these to make sure that I'm uh, not just giving you uh, my own opinion. I've sourced this out. So the first thing I've sourced out 
is Modesty by Pope Pius XI, either written by him or one of these cardinal vicars under him. I'm linking the actual words to the Marian modesty, especially what should be done at Mass, but probably everywhere. That's the first show note I'm going to link. Second I'm going to link is um, Eric Sammons at Crisis Magazine speaking to Archbishop Cordelioni at, um, about Nancy Pelosi. I'm going to link the whole thing. I just showed you 30 seconds of the clip, but I'm going to link the whole thing so you don't think I'm just taking things out of context if you want to go watch that. The third thing I'm going to link is the words, the words only, of St. Francis de Sales, how to follow along at the traditional Latin Mass by meditating on the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth thing I'm going to link is the Vimeo, the video that I made splicing in the scenes from Mel Gibson's Passion to the words of St. Francis de Sales on the Latin Mass. And the fifth thing that you will see linked is the Spiritual Communion written by St. Alphonsus Liguori. Please say an Our Father for me at Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis. Patris et Spiritus Sancti descendit super vos et maniat semper. Amen.